so good to be back with you all here at South Street Campus. For those of you that I haven't met yet, my name is Joe Scavato. I'm one of the pastors here at Chapel Street and uh, just excited to be able to worship with you and to explore God's Word together. If we haven't met yet, come say hi after the service. I'd love to meet you and connect a name with these masked faces that I'm getting able to see today. Well, a little while ago, uh, my wife Judy and I were over at some friend's house visiting and it was a particularly memorable time together that day. Um, See, unbeknownst to us, our friends had recently found out that they were expecting their first child. They hadn't told many people yet, but they wanted to tell us that day, and so they came up with this plan with how they were going to tell us. They uh, decided that they wanted to print out a picture of their first ultrasound, and they were going to put it on their kitchen table and kind of like half hide it under some magazines and stuff like that, and just kind of wait and see how long it would take for us to realize. We have very sneaky and devious friends, as you can see. And so we walk into their house, we go into their kitchen, and it takes my wife about two seconds to find this picture. And I know most of you don't know her or know me super well, but the way that we responded to this news tells you everything that you need to know about us. My wife absolutely lost her mind. She was so excited. She was screaming and crying, and she was hugging them, and she was hugging me. I don't really know why. She was just, just so excited. She, I, I think the neighbors probably heard her. I think probably the unborn child heard her. I don't even know if it had ears at that point, but, but she was just, you know, over the moon. Me, my response was a little different. I think the first word that I said was, I want to know more. Like, the information that you have given me is not enough. Is this real? Is this not real? Is it yours? Is it somebody else's? And most importantly, will you name the baby after me? Because Joe can work for a boy or a girl, so we can make this happen. I want to know more. I I think today as we continue our series that we've been calling Living Hope, this exploration of the book of 1 Peter, that that phrase, I want to know more, is really at the heart of what we're going to be talking about today. If you've been with us this past month or so, we've been exploring this letter, and as we have every week this series, we want to encourage you to continue memorizing these words we've, we find in First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We want you to keep those words in your mind and in your heart as we explore these words of 1 Peter. The last two weeks of this series, if you've been with us, we explored this idea of submission, of what it looks like to live as a servant in the world as an, and as a servant in the context of marriage. And today, as we continue in chapter 3 of this letter, we're going to see Peter's instructions to a persecuted church as he gives kind of a a theology of suffering, how a follower of Jesus should interact with and respond to and think about suffering, given what we know about God. The lesson that we're going to see him teach today was, to me, kind of a surprising one. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we read this verse in 1 Peter 2, verse 12, that said that it is through our honorable conduct, through the way that we act in the world, the way that we respond to various things that we encounter, that people will see the glory of God, that they will see this picture of who Jesus is. We've talked about how the way that you respond to authority in your life, 
can show people a picture of the sacrifice of Jesus. How the way that two people interact in the context of a marriage can show people the love of Jesus. And today, he continues that thought and brings it into the context of suffering. That our response to suffering can, and even should, show people a picture of the heart of Jesus. My hope for our time today is that through this message, God can equip you if you are going through a time of suffering yourself. Or if you just find yourself trying to respond to a broken and suffering world in the way that Jesus wants us to. To cause people to look at your life, to look at your faith, and say those same words that I said to my friends. I want to know more. I need more information. Tell me more about what is going on here. So let's jump in together. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll pick it up at verse 8. It says this. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who reveal your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. All right, makes sense? We all good? Good to go? Now, there's, there's a lot in this. There's, there's things that maybe didn't make sense to you that, that you want to hear more about, and we're going to work through this together. And what I want to do today is bring up a few things in the context of this theology of suffering that Peter is talking about. So the first thing that we need to look at is a higher call. A higher call. I'm I'm curious, how many of you grew up being the youngest sibling in your family? Any youngest siblings? Okay, good amount of us. That's me as well. Um, And as one of your pastors, I think I can speak in authority that we had it the hardest. Um, I think I can say that. But but it's always kind of strange. For me, I had an older brother. Um, He was two years older than me. And and the the relationship you have with your siblings is just kind of weird, isn't it? Um, Like I said, he was two years older than me. and, And so my brother and I were always fighting. We would always end up, you know, bickering and going at each other. He would try to pick on me because he was bigger than me, and I would always try to fight back. And, and it just seemed like we were always at our throats. 
But the, the weird thing about having a sibling is that you're the only one that's allowed to do that to the other person. I remember at one point, we were pretty young at this uh, point in time, but, but some of my brother's friends were uh, picking on me or, or making fun of me about something, and my brother actually stood up and told them to stop. And I was like shocked. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Like, he actually loves me. You know, I felt like I was, you know, in a public service announcement about bullying. It, it meant so much to me, and I still remember it to this day. But I also remember that a few minutes later, he was saying those exact same things to me because that was his right as my brother. So it's always a little confusing for me when we read verses like these where Peter talks about this idea of brotherly love. But let's try to figure out what he's trying to teach us. Look again with me to verse 8. It says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, here it is, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Who will harm you if you are zealous for what is good? This, this question, I think, is at the heart of what Peter has been trying to teach us these past several weeks. That word zealous meant something very specific to the people that he was writing to. Now, there was a group, many of you might know this, called zealots, that they were these re- religious and political radical group that looked to overthrow the Roman Empire with force. We've been talking throughout this series that Peter was writing to these Christians that were being oppressed and persecuted for their faith. He was writing to people that would have been tempted to fall into this group, to become zealots themselves. And here's Peter. Peter, of all people, who once cut off the ear of a man who was going to arrest Jesus, saying, if you are to be zealous, be zealous for what is good. Have this complete devotion to, this complete commitment that you are willing to give your life towards, to being good. He gives us this beautiful picture of how the church should act in the midst of suffering. That when you are reviled, when evil comes to your doorstep, you respond with blessing. These are the same words that we saw describing Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. In fact, you can see these two verses uh, up on the screen together. The similarities in chapter 2, when he was reviled, he did not revile. In chapter 3, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. The lesson, I think, is clear for us. That the way that we respond to a broken and selfish and suffering world is by following the example of Jesus by following his lead in the midst of it. And then we see this in verse 8. Look at these words in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So we have five commands here. Five commands that I want you to think about kind of as layers, almost like an onion. So there's an outer layer of these commands that, that we see the first and the last one. Unity of mind and a humble mind. This is how our mindset should be, the commands that he has given us, that Christ has given as an example as well. 
He's saying if you are to live in a broken world, that that broken world will always be drawn to something that is whole, to something that is united, that you should be zealous for, committed to unity, to not let your differences become a divide, to consider others before yourselves, that's humility, so that you can remain focused on what matters most, that's unity, the hope and the call that you have been given, to follow the example of the humble king that came in on a donkey, that remained united to the will of his father. Next, we want to move one layer in into the uh, second layer of this onion of commands. I know it's a weird symbol, but just go with me here. We have the second and the fourth, sympathy and a tender heart. We are to be sympathetic. That Greek word meaning same emotion, same suffering, same feeling. The idea is one of empathy. That no one should be able to outcare the church. That we are the ones that step into suffering when no one else will. This is what we are called to. And then that phrase, a tender heart, is this idea of having this gut level, almost visceral reaction when we see hurt or brokenness or injustice in the world. That we cannot help ourselves from stepping into someone else's pain because we have a Savior that did the same thing for us. And then quickly, brotherly love, the the love of a family, a reminder that when we have been born again, we have been given a new family, the family of God. This is, I think, at the heart of what Peter is trying to say in this passage here. That when suffering comes into our lives, we have been created to go through that with a community. A family that, just like me and my brother, we don't always get along perfectly. But we show up when it counts. Now, this is what I want to say to those of you that have come in today and you are hurting or you are suffering or you are feeling just empty or overwhelmed that you have been placed here in this community for a purpose. Do not suffer alone. Allow the family of God to surround you with love and with care. This is what you are called to. This is God's will and his purpose for his church. This is what leads to this blessing that Peter describes as he quotes Psalm 34, a psalm that David wrote when he was suffering when he was on the run for his life, that says that you will love your life, you will see good days, that God's face will be upon you when you are the community and the people that God has called you to be. And this is, I think, Peter's point. And and I'm guessing I don't need to do much convincing to show you that this is true. That we live in a world that is broken and desperate for hope. You see this, right? You, we, we see this every day. People are hurting and people are grieving and people are suffering. And in the midst of the suffering, the church has been given a higher call. A while ago, my wife Judy and I were on vacation and uh, we were at the beach and we were walking on the beach one evening um, and I think we were arguing about something. I don't really remember what. It's a little fuzzy. But, but we were having this argument until three or four police cars came speeding past us on the beach. And they pulled up a little bit ahead of us, and so we walked up there and found out that there was a family that had lost their daughter in the current of the ocean. 
And so these police cars are there, they, they have binoculars, they're looking out into the water, and, and these speedboats came uh, flying by, and they have these headlights, and, and even a helicopter came flying over. So it was this really surreal moment, um, and, and really, really scary. And there was probably, I'd say, a hundred or so of us on that beach, and we were all total strangers. And yet in that moment, we were united in concern and worry for this family. And I cannot imagine thinking that argument that we were having mattered anymore. Friends, this is the state that our world is in. People are lost and drowning in despair. They are desperate to experience love. And too often the church remains focused on having the wrong conversations at the wrong time. This broken and suffering world filled with broken and suffering people, needs a different but not divided church to step in to suffering, to follow this higher call that we've been given, to be zealous for what is good, to be willing to step into your neighbor's life that feels isolated and lonely, to be able to step into your coworker's life that is going through a family issue, to call that family member that you haven't spoken to in years, to get involved in your community and find out what the needs truly are. This is our calling, to step into darkness with hope and with light. This is where Peter begins, and after this higher call, he shows us the importance of a hopeful answer. By the way, the daughter was fine. Uh, it turned out she was at the pool the whole time. But that, that would have ruined my story. <laughs> a hopeful answer. Um, back when I was in school, there, there came a time where I had to recognize that math was not my strongest subject. I think it happened around the time where math was no longer about numbers and they threw letters in there. And that just didn't really make sense to me. I thought letters should stay in English and numbers should stay with math, but apparently that's not how it works. And, and so I, I kind of struggled through most of my math career as I got older. But there was one thing in particular about math class that really frustrated me. See, it frustrated me that in math it isn't enough to get the right answer. You have to get the right answer, but you also have to show your work. You have to show every step that you took to get the right answer, and that always really frustrated me. Show your work. I heard that over and over from teachers, and, and there were some teachers that, even if you got the right answer, wouldn't give you any credit if you missed a single step. I mentioned that to my wife uh, the other day, and she said that was her favorite part about math because she wanted her teachers to know that she wasn't lucky, she was good, <laughs> which I thought was crazy. Anyways. As much as that didn't make sense to me in the context of math, I think a little bit that idea of showing your work is what Peter is trying to get at in this next section of our text. Look with me starting at verse uh, 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So Peter continues here, and he's saying, who's going to hurt you if you just do good? But even if they do, your fear and your reverence of God as holy should be greater than your fear of persecution 
in the world. And then he, he gives us something in verse 15 that's so important. He says, always be prepared to make a defense for why you have this hope, for why you have this faith. That word defense is the Greek word in which we get our word apology and also the term apologetics, which if you don't know what that is, apologetics is the, the uh, rational and reasonable defense of your faith. It's this idea of not just knowing what you believe, but also knowing why you believe what you believe. To not just have faith, but to be able to show your work. It's an important thing, it's an important issue that we need to talk about, but before we get there, let me ask you a question. Why would someone ask these Christians the reason of their hope? Or put it this way, why would someone ask you the reason of yours? This goes back to the whole point that Peter is trying to make. That the way that we conduct ourselves gives people a picture of Christ. And it is in the way that we respond to suffering, and in the way that we respond even to those who cause suffering, that we have been called to be holy and set apart. That there should be something in the way that we respond to pain, and something in the way that we respond to mistreatment, and something in the way that we respond to bad news and difficult seasons that make people say the same thing that I said to my friends. I want to know more. There's something here that doesn't make sense to me. What is it? Recently, um, I attended my uh, grandmother's funeral, who passed away after just a beautiful life of 92 years. Uh, Just an amazing woman who who had a, a faith that always inspired me, that was always the source of strength in her life. And so I was there at the funeral with my family and, and talking to different family members who were all in different places with God. And, and I had this thought, and I wonder if you've had this thought before as well. I wonder how people do this without God. I wonder how people grieve. I wonder how people suffer without the hope of Jesus. Now, of course, I was sad and still am, and, and I will miss her so much. That's an important point because what we're saying here is that it's not wrong to experience the pains of suffering. It's not wrong to feel upset or to feel sad or to be angry with God. All of those things are welcomed in his eyes. We grieve, but we do not grieve as those without hope. We do not grieve with those like those without hope. We do not suffer without the knowledge that our Savior is with us that he will have victory, that I will see her again, and that death is not the end of our story when we have been born again. So that brings us back to this question. Has anyone ever asked you this? Why are you a Christian? Why do you believe all that stuff? That whole church thing, what is the reason for it? Now, I think for a lot of us, when we hear questions like that, or even hear this term apologetics, we immediately go to all the things that we don't know. All the Bible verses that don't make sense to us, all the questions we haven't figured out, all the doubts that we've come up with in our own minds, that's just a a normal part of the Christian life. But that's not really what Peter is saying right here. He's not saying that you need to have every answer to every question. He is saying that you need to have an answer to one. How has Jesus changed your life? 
How has Jesus changed your life? Some of you uh, might have heard of the Rooted curriculum. It's a, a small group curriculum that our church has been starting to have our life groups go through. And part of Rooted is going around with your group and answering that question. How has Jesus changed you? Tell me your story. And I've been able to go through Rooted with several groups now, and I can honestly tell you that one of the most encouraging and life-giving things in my own faith journey has been hearing the answers to that question. I've heard stories of reconciliation, stories of miraculous works, things that literally have no explanation other than God. Stories of hope, stories of provision, stories that just don't make sense, that give me so much encouragement. And Peter is saying it's impossible to hear stories like that and not be affected in some way. Now, it's good and it's important to learn more about your faith and to figure out those questions and dive into Scripture. In fact, we must be doing that all the time, and there are resources available to do that. But what Peter is saying here, to have a defense for your hope, means being able to point to, in gentleness and respect for where other people are coming from, how Jesus has changed my life. So, what about you? How has Jesus changed yours? What has he done in your life? Now, for many of us, we have a a story or or a testimony is how the, the Christian term for it may be, the things that God has done in your life. But my guess is that there are some of us in this room that we don't really know what to point to. That maybe when we look for Jesus, all that we can see instead is pain or loss or fear. Maybe all that we can see is what has happened in the past or what we're afraid will happen in the future. I've shared a little bit before here at Chapel Street how experiencing the loss of my dad affected my faith. And how there were so many days where I just couldn't feel God's presence. But here's what I know to be true. That God is so much more than just a feeling. He is so much more than these warm fuzzies that we often think of. He is real and he is truth. And the truth of his word tells me that even when I don't feel him, he is still present. He is still working. He is still good. And so I just want to encourage you, if you are going through one of those seasons, to hold on to what you know to be true. To draw near to his word. To have a reason for your hope. We have a higher calling. We need a hopeful answer. And then finally, we see a heavenly victory. I want to read for you just the last few verses of our uh, passage here today. We'll start at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. So Peter ends this passage by pointing us back to the example of Christ. In essence, he's saying that just as you submit to human authority as Christ did, you also endure suffering by following his example. 
and also because of what his suffering accomplished. Now, before we get into that that aspect of these verses, let's talk about this middle section, this stuff about Jesus preaching to spirits and Noah and the ark, and and what's that all about? It was interesting researching this passage. um, I found Martin Luther, who's one of the most influential Christians ever, um, and in his commentary about these verses, he basically said, I don't know. I don't know what it means. So that made me feel pretty confident. However, there are a few theories that we can talk about. First, one theory is that it could mean that the most literal version of these words is the case, that after Jesus' death, he descended into hell and preached to spirits to those that had died in the flood of Noah's time. Second, it could be that this was referring to Jesus proclaiming to fallen angels or spirits after the resurrection. Third, it could be that the message of God was proclaimed through Noah, through the Holy Spirit, to those during his life that were imprisoned by sin. Or it could be something entirely different. The truth is that we don't ultimately know. And so whenever we experience verses and passages like this that we have questions about, it's important to look at it in the broader context of what Peter is trying to teach us. Peter's trying to say that in the life of Christ, suffering had consequences. That through the suffering of Christ, there were things that were accomplished. And he points out two In verse 18, we see that first, it is through the suffering of Christ that we have been reconciled with the Father. This is Jesus' message in John chapter 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is through me, it is through the righteous sacrificing for the unrighteous that you have been brought to God. This is the thing that we point others to in the midst of our own suffering. That anytime we experience something, we can be reminded of the reconciliation offered to us through the suffering of Christ. That we can be encouraged by what is to come. That brings us to number two. The suffering of Jesus gave him authority over all other authority. Gave him victory over all authority. This is verse 22 that says that angels, authorities, and powers are all subjected to him. And there's that word again, subjected. It's the same word that we've been talking about in chapter 2 and onward that says that we are to respond in kind to every human institution, that we subject ourselves. And here we see why. We see the ultimate reason, because these human institutions, all of these people are subjected to Christ himself. That we can have joy in the midst of suffering, because Jesus has victory. We can have hope because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And we can endure, because he is who he said that he is. That death has been defeated. That sin has an expiration date. This isn't just information to help prepare us for our future, for after we're gone. This is something that can transform the way that we interact with our suffering today. In the midst of difficulty and loss in sorrow, this is what we know that's ahead. This is the promise that we must hold on to. Now, I know that even in this room, there's a, a list of things that we're all going through. Medical issues and family things and mental health concerns, and, and the list could go on and on. And so this is, I think, what God is trying to say to us today. If you are going through a difficult season in your own life, that you have been placed in this community, in this family of God, to love and be loved by others. That you have been given hope 
that Jesus has changed and will continue to change your life. And that your suffering, whatever it is, will not get the final answer. Your victory has been assured by your Savior who loves you. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we are just so grateful for the truth of your word and the encouragement that you have for us. So God, right now, I just pray for any of us in this room today that are going through a time of suffering, a time of hardship, a time of difficulty. God, would you surround each one of us with your love and with your peace and with a family that is there to support us? Would you allow us to be the people that you have called us to be, to be light in the midst of darkness? God, we know that this is what you have called us to do. We know that in our future we will have victory, and so help us live like that is the case. We love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.